Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Well, in Mark's gospel, the road we've been on for several months now, the passage for this week is Mark 15, the crucifixion. That's usually the story that we tell leading up to Easter. But because the cross is so central to what we preach and to who we are, it knows no season. And so we want to begin this portion of our worship by listening to Mark's account of the crucifixion. Uh, and then we want to head off in maybe a little bit different direction about the role that the cross plays in our lives as believers today. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and rebuild it. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down. Come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And according to John's gospel, this loud cry was, it is finished. Father, this was the moment, the pivotal moment in history and all of time that changed us, that changed me forever. We celebrate the resurrection confirming this work, but this moment, this horrific, suffering and death, this perfect sacrifice is what made it possible for the forgiveness of sin that had forever separated us from you. May we never rush past these moments, Father, to get to the resurrection, for it is this, his death, the cross that he came to do, to bear my sin, our sins, as the perfect sacrifice. We stand amazed at such 
love and mercy and grace. And we are forever grateful to you, Father. In the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, we pray. Amen. You know this old hymn, sing it with me. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fault I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a danger for the church to join the rest of the world and move on after Easter. Just flip the page on the calendar and off to the next thing. But the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, is what the gospel is all about. And we should be thrilled to be reminded that our sins are forgiven because of the cross, but I'm afraid too often uh, we overlook what else took place because of the cross. We are Easter people. It's not just a calendar event for us. It's our identity. But if you're a believer, if you're a confessing follower of Jesus, something else happened because of the cross and the empty tomb that often gets overlooked, and that's what I want us to talk about today. There are a lot of folks who claim to be Christians who know all about Easter, who know about Jesus' death on the cross for their sins, but they know very little about their own death. Somehow they've missed their own obituary. Now, I realize there are some young people in the room who don't know what an obituary is, and that's fine, but there are many of us who read them on a regular basis. And I'm guessing, though, at this point, that you've never read your own obituary. And depending on how you feel on any given morning, you're either relieved or disappointed because of that. But the obituary that I want us to look at this morning is from Scripture. It's found in Colossians 3, verse 3. And your obituary as a believer says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Phillips translation says, For as far as this world is concerned, you are already dead. And your true life is a hidden one in Christ. Well, the good news for believers is that the cross is not just about Jesus' death for our sins, as wonderful as that will always be. Something else occurred on the cross, and it's critical that we understand that as confessing followers of Jesus, the cross is about our death as well. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. No longer I who live. My death, my obituary... You know, one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that when you place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, you are identified with Him. And from a spiritual standpoint, whatever happened to Christ happened to you. When He died, you died. When He was buried, you were buried. When He was raised, you were raised in Him to walk 
in newness of life. And Ephesians 2.6 says, now we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. They are dead. The new things have come. Well, Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture, and the definitive commentary on this truth is found in Romans 6. If you brought a Bible this morning, I would encourage you to turn there. And Paul begins the chapter, Romans 6, by raising an objection and then by answering it. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, Paul's objection here grows out of his teaching in chapter 5 of justification, which means that in Christ, God no longer holds our sin against us. And that's so significant that God no longer holds our sin against us. He has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, He rescued us, past tense, from our domain of darkness. He transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have, present active, right now, this is our possession, in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so in Romans 5, Paul makes this case that God no longer holds our sins against us. We have been justified. And then this first verse of chapter 6, he specifically addresses this teaching that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, his intent here was to expose the false idea that grace is licensed to sin. Those who come from a Jewish background were a little hesitant about grace because if, if we didn't have to do anything to earn this salvation, if it's just about grace, then people will just do whatever they want. And Paul was saying, actually, you can do whatever you want. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, he tells the church at Corinth. But what he's saying here is that because you have been transformed, what you want now is totally different. Your sin wanter has been taken offline. It has been transformed. So the first thing Paul tells us in this passage, that as, as believers, as new creations, verse 2, we are dead to sin. Now sin in these verses is a noun, it's not a verb. Uh, Paul is pointing back to what he just finished saying in, in chapter 5. Turn back a page and look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul personifies sin in these verses in chapter 5. He sees it as a ruling monarch on the throne of the life of a lost person. Now he's not speaking of acts of sin, performance, reigning as the king. He is talking about identity here. He is talking about the the controlling factor of a person's life apart from God that dominates, that rules, that reigns in the life of unbelievers. Now, as believers, we are capable of sinning, performance, but we are no longer under the dominion of sin, and so our identity no longer is sinner. That's so critical for us to know. Paul says we have died to sin. We have been made new in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? 
Well, everyone shows up on the planet alive and kicking and screaming and all sorts of things. We are alive physically, but we show up with a spirit that is dead to the things of God. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. From a spiritual standpoint, God saw you as a dead person. You were, Paul says. But now in Christ, when you make the confession that Jesus is Lord, in Christ, the part of you that used to be dead to God and alive to sin has been crucified with Christ. And knowing this truth then is to translate into our living like it's true. Wouldn't it be a remarkable thing if Christians actually lived out what they say they believed? We've died to sin. We can no longer live in it. There is no life there. The moment that you move in sin's direction, the Spirit of Christ within you immediately says, this is wrong. You don't belong here. You can go there, but you will never be at home in that again because you have died to sin. We cannot deliberately live in sin because we have a new relationship, because we have been identified with Christ in His death his burial, his resurrection. And now we have been made capable of relating to sin the way that Christ does. It holds no power over him. He doesn't respond to it. And in him, we too have died to sin, Paul says. You may not feel dead. You may not look dead. Well, some of you a little closer this morning. You may not always act dead to sin, but at some point the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to your spirit that a death has occurred that has forever changed you. And so, yes, we are going to look the same and feel the same and think the same on many days, but we are going to know something, and that is we are no longer the same. Christ died for our sins so that now we are dead to sin. The second thing that Paul wants us to know is that we are no longer slaves to sin. Look at verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Well, the reason that sin no longer holds power over us, the reason we are no longer slaves to sin, Paul says in verse 3, is because we have been baptized into Christ Jesus and his death. And Paul says, do you not know this? This is why we study the Word of God. This is why we have classes on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and why we gather in our homes and communities to study the Word of God. We want to know what God says about who we are now that we belong to Him. Because what we know about God, who we believe Him to be, where we believe Him to be, will determine our actions in this community that where God has placed us. So it's absolutely critical to know the word. Paul says, do you not know? Now, whenever we hear baptism, we think of Etienne's announcement a few minutes ago. We think about water. We think about plunging somebody into a a tank of water. 
But water baptism is a symbol for something that's taken place in the spiritual realm. Paul's not talking about water baptism here. What he is talking about is when we make the confession, Jesus is Lord, God immerses us into Christ. He plunges us into Christ Jesus. Now, in a couple of weeks when we have baptism, they will plunge people into the water. When they get up, they will just be dripping, soaking wet with water. You'll be able to tell those people are wet. When God baptizes us into Christ, when he plunges us into the Lord Jesus, the world ought to be able to say, those people are dripping Jesus. Even if they don't know who Jesus is or what he is about, they ought to be able to look at the, at the saints and say, there is something strange about that guy. I don't know what it is, can't put my finger on it, but he's different from anybody else that I normally hang out with. We have been baptized. We have been immersed into Christ. We can no longer live in sin because we have been buried into Christ. We've been baptized into his death. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We were baptized into his death because it was there, his death on the cross, that he dealt with our sin. So it's absolutely critical to know that there has been a death. It is yours. And that that death means that you've been freed from the power of sin, that you are dead to it. It no longer controls your life. And not only are you dead, Paul says, but in verse 4 he says you were buried. Now the importance of burial is that it attests to the reality of death. When someone, something is dead, we bury them. And that is a, that's a sure marker. And Paul says we are dead. We are crucified with Christ. It is final. The old life that was us pre-Christ had to die. God could not fix the old you. He could not somehow rehabilitate the old you. He had to crucify the old you. And he crucified with you with Christ Jesus. He gave you then a new spirit created in righteousness and holiness. So this old life in Adam that was governed by sin has ended. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but no longer. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, but no longer. And in verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So in Christ, I'm, I'm dead to sin. It no longer holds any power over me. I can choose now not to sin. I can also choose not to be sin conscious. Do you ever feel like the Christian life is just this ongoing effort not to mess up? Where's the focus? If, if all of your Christian experience is, is just trying not to sin or not to mess up or not to say a bad word or not to be ugly to people, where's the focus of that? It's me. It, it, it's, it's all on me. Well, we can own our humanity because of grace. We can acknowledge that I, I do sin, I will sin in the future, but when I do I make the confession, yes, sir, Father, I agree, that was sin in my life. That was disobedience. Thank you that I am forgiven. And then I can turn and walk in the freedom and the forgiveness that is mine 
in Christ Jesus. We were enslaved to sin, Paul says, but no longer. We express the, the desires and the purpose of our spiritual father, Satan, but he is our father no longer. We were children of wrath, but no longer. That life that we knew, Paul said, is dead. We've been freed from it. And so the, the confidence that we have that we're dead to sin and that we're no longer slaves to sin is based on this third thing that Paul wants us to know from this passage, uh, and that's the reality of the resurrection, that Christ has conquered death. Look at verse 8, Romans 6. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul writes to let us know so that we might have full confidence that the author of our salvation, Jesus Christ, will never again come under the power of sin and death. He died to sin once for all. He submitted himself to the power of sin and death, but through that death he died to the power of sin. And now he is alive forever. And in Him, we are joined to crucified, risen, indestructible life, no longer enslaved by sin. Now the life that Jesus lives, He lives to the Father, and His life in the life of the saints will look the same. It is a life lived to the Father. It's not lived for me, it's lived for others, but it's lived as an offering to the Father. So this journey of faith that we're on sort of comes down to a question, how do I live to God? If the Spirit of Christ in me is the life that lives to the Father, how do I cooperate with that? How do I join in with that and live to God? And Paul tells us in verse 11, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This phrase, you also must consider. Uh, the NIV translation has count yourselves dead to sin. But I like the King James version here. It says, likewise... Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who knew that King James was country? I reckon we didn't know that before. Now, when you or I say, I reckon, we usually mean I think, or I guess, or this is my opinion, but that's not what the word means in this verse. Reckon translates a Greek word that means take into account, calculate, Examine all of the evidence and then act accordingly. And Paul is saying, look, add up all the facts, consider the truths of Scripture and what took place on the cross, and then live like that is true for you. Believe that what God says in His Word is really true for you in your life. There are a couple of reckons here. The first one is, he says, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Now, Paul doesn't say, feel like you're dead to sin. In fact, I'm so grateful. Scripture never instructs us to feel anything. Feelings are very poor indicators of reality. We override our feelings all the time. We can do that with our chooser, with our minds. We, we make up. You will, some of you will not feel like going to work tomorrow, but you will in spite of how you feel, all right? So he doesn't tell us to, to feel like we're dead to sin. He doesn't even say, understand fully what it means to be dead to sin. He's saying, 
just to act like God's Word is true, that you are, in fact, dead to sin. Now, reckoning doesn't make you dead to sin. Reckoning just makes that truth operative in your life. Again, God doesn't command us to be dead to sin. He tells us we are dead to sin. He's taking care of that. The command is, act like you are. Act like what He says about us is true. In fact, this is the command invitation of the gospel, isn't it? Just act like everything in this book is true. Allow the Word of God to find full and free expression in your life so that this lost world will see the truth of the gospel. James, writing to the church, says something a little similar. Prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. So, does our acting like the gospel is true make it true? No, whether we act on it or not, God's truth is, is true. Our action or inaction doesn't validate that. Just like the speed limit is truth whether we act like it or not. But what Paul is saying is that it's critical to know that we've been crucified with Christ, that we're dead to sin. And when by faith we reckon it to be true, it means we're choosing to live like it's true. His second reckon in verse 11 is this, but reckon yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm alive, I'm drawing a breath, I'm living, but the life is only abundant and eternal in Christ Jesus. So we want to take into account this second reckon, the fact that we're alive to God because of this new nature that is ours in Christ, 2 Peter 1, 4. We have now the desire and the ability, the power to live our lives in accordance with the Word of God. And again, reckoning that you're alive to God doesn't make you alive to God. Truth is truth, regardless of whether we act on it or not. God made us alive in Christ Jesus when He saved us. That's the truth. But the experience and the expression of that life will be the result of our choice for obedience. The choice of obedience is now mine to make in Christ. I can choose to believe that He has placed His Spirit within me. And I can choose to believe that I have a new nature, that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. That my life has been joined to the crucified, risen, indestructible life of Jesus. And I will allow that life to find expression in and through me. So how do we do this? How do we reckon? I seem to have frequently have the conversation with God that kind of boils down to, okay, God, how does this work? And I usually hear back from him something along the lines of, faith isn't what works for you. Faith is about trusting me. Yes, sir, I understand that, but I really need to know what to do so I can begin experiencing this life that we're talking about here. Trust me. But trust me. I think if we're honest, most of us would have to admit we want the formula. Man, we want to take the notes, one, two, three, and this is how it's going to work. We want to know what we need to do so that God will come through on time and consistently in our life. And when He does, we think, all right, now I'm finally doing it. Now I'm living this victorious Christian life I've, I've read about. Yes, sir, we're, we're going good, God. You're doing good. I'm doing good. We're living this Christian life. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to you. I'm so got this Christian stuff under control. 
until I don't. And the problem comes then when we're convinced I'm doing all of the right stuff and God is not doing his part. And I'm not experiencing the victory that he has promised. So maybe I need to do more. Or maybe it's hopeless and God really isn't concerned with my particular corner of the world. And even if we walked with God for decades, it's easy to fall back into the temptation where we feel like we need to perform at a certain level or we need to know the right formula to get all this going. But what Paul teaches in the book of Romans is that performance, even good, impressive, religious performance, is flesh. It's not faith. And the focus on flesh is what we can accomplish in our own ability, what we can do, thinking that, okay, if I do that, then God has to do his part. And Paul is saying, man, that's what you died to. Your efforts and attempts at pleasing God, why would you go back to that? Faith is not some formula. And then at this point, it can get pretty frustrating unless we reckon that what God says about us really is true. I think Paul's instruction in Romans 6 is intended to pull us to the very edge of faith that runs on reckoning. That moment by moment chooses to believe and act in a way that says, God, I I believe you in this. So that whatever I'm encountering, whatever my circumstances uh, are, whatever situation I find myself in, I realize now I've got a couple of reckons to deal with. Am I alive to this or am I dead to this? This behavior, this action that I'm considering, this person I'm getting ready to choke, this anything that interrupts my regular schedule, how am I thinking about responding to this? Am I dead to that option or am I alive to another option? And Paul says, if you do want to choke someone, remember... (laughs) You're dead to that because you've died to sin, because you are no longer a slave to sin. And if you've died to sin and what it's offering, if you're dead to the temptation to get your own way and to win and to live for self, you are also at the same time alive to another option. There are two reckons. Two sides of the same coin. So in every situation where I realize I'm dead to one option, now there is a godly option that I am alive to. When you leave this morning and you can't get out on 27 because the person in the right lane at Thunderbird and 27 is going straight, and you've waited through three lights, what are your options Well, you may want to honk your horn. You may want to make complicated hand gestures and say all kind of things. But you're dead to that. So, God, I'm dead to that. So what am I alive to? You're alive to the fact that you're out, you're in your car, you're driving around, you have the freedom to move, the humidity is not crushing us. Isn't it good to draw breath on planet Earth today? When you go to lunch today and the server messes up your order because the service in the restaurant, those guys are so overworked and overstressed these days. And you want to let her have it. You want to complain to the manager and you want to leave a minuscule tip and just show her because of the lousy service. What you need to hear is, hey, I'm dead to that. What am I alive to? 
I'm live to the voice of Christ speaking a word of encouragement through me to this person who's harassed, who's really working hard and the best of their ability. I'm alive to leaving a big whopping tip that makes no sense based on the service. That's what I'm alive to. Reckon. I reckon I'm dead to that. I reckon I'm alive to this. It becomes this moment-by-moment conversation with the Father. My initial thought, my flesh response is this, Father, I know I'm dead to that. What are my godly options? What am I alive to in this moment so that I can speak life and hope and encouragement into this community where God has placed you to be salt and light? And so as we leave this place this morning, we reckon in these terms, Father, I, I surrender myself totally to you. I want to walk in your truth moment by moment. I want to believe that what you say about me in your word is actually true. Will you allow that to find expression in and through my life? We want to see what God sees so we can say what God says so that the lost world in the heartland doesn't see Easter just as a holiday on the calendar. Easter is who we are, sons and daughters of the crucified, risen King who speak life, who speak encouragement, who speak the good news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, this day we are humbled and amazed at the price you paid for our redemption. The cross is so central to us, and not only did Jesus die for our sins, but Father, would you remind us this day in such a powerful way that we too died. We were buried with him, but we have now been raised to walk in newness of life. And so in this new life that you've called us to, will you show us the godly options? Will you show us how faith becomes this very practical, moment-by-moment expression in our lives so that this world around us begins to catch a glimpse of what the gospel truly is? Father, would you empower your church to that mission today? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.